This is lecture three. The title is Credit Unions. I already indicated the idea is that the word bank is has become a bad word and I'm envisaging the situation that after the collapse of the monetary system nobody establishing a financial institution would want to call it a bank because bank would be a bad word people would have nothing to do with it so looking around for alternative names credit union came handy so uh, the first time when I lectured on this I dedicated the lecture to the memory of Ely Moore, the first union official who was ever elected to the Congress. The year was 1834. He was a solid gold standard man, unusual uh, for a union <laughs> official, but remember that was in the 19th century. And uh, Ely Moore believed with Daniel Webster that, and this is a quotation from Daniel Webster himself, of all the contrivances for cheating the laboring classes of mankind, none has been more effective than that which deludes them with paper money. I repeat, quotation is from Daniel Webster and it was true then and it is still true I think. Charge has been made that the gold standard was conceived to protect the rich and just the opposite is true. The gold standard is the protector of the laboring because when it comes to capital a laborer, a wage earner, if he ever sees capital firsthand, it would be a gold coin. He would not see capital, uh, would not own, I'm sorry, he would see it because he would be working with capital. These are the tools of production. But he would never own a serious piece of capital but if he owns a gold coin then he does it and then he be could become an employer later on himself. So we started out discussing real bills. They provide credits to move urgently demanded consumer goods from the producer to the retailer. <laughs> We don't need banks for that. In, every, in any event, short-term commercial credit arises not through lending, but through clearing. I already mentioned that the way credit arises, credit represented by real bills, is through clearing. There is no lending involved. It would be wrong to say that the wholesaler is lending or making a loan 
to the retailer because actually the retailer is closer to the consumer so therefore it's he who calls the shot so the, if you ask the question who is the stronger uh, partner in this uh, business relationship you would have to say the retailer so that uh, this is just the opposite of people uh, suggest that the wholesaler is lending or making a loan to the retailer which the retailer repays at the end of the period. That's just complete nonsense. Whoever is closer to the ultimate consumer is handling a merchandise which is which has more dynamics, which is more liquid, more uh, in demand and so on. So that's a complete distortion to suggest that this short-term credit represented by the bill involves lending. Credit, yes, but not lending. <clears throat> As the supply of consumer goods emerge in production, in the production process, so does the means to finance its movement. And that's just the bill, the real bill. The maturing good moves in this direction from the original producer usually agricultural mining or whatever it is getting closer and closer to the consumer so that's the direction of the movement of the maturing consumer good at the same time the bill which is financing the movement is moving in the opposite direction issued by the retailer on the strength of his customers going to the wholesaler and the various other producers of semi-finished goods. So I repeat, no lending is involved. Coin, credit, circulation clearing, the four C's I mentioned when I quoted Adams and added the word clearing myself. Uh, the four C's are central ideas <coughs> and economics has by and large ignored, ignored them. And in the case when economists discuss them, like in the case of clearing, they completely misrepresented the idea. Clearing is extremely important and to understand the movement of the maturing good and the movement of the clearing instrument in the other direction because the credit does not involve lending. It's in the dynamics of the clearing system. Now here is a mental experiment. Imagine that General Motors has come into the possession of a fantastic contrivance. 
fantastic invention. An invisible vacuum cleaner capable of siphoning off uh, money from the pockets of every worker. <laughs> if the union made a gain of two dollars for the worker, one dollar would be siphoned up by this invisible <coughs> vacuum cleaner. Further, imagine that the invisible vacuum cleaner would operate secretly and unobtrusively just like other contrivances did in the recent account, uh, recent, at that time when I wrote this first, it was recent, the Enron and, uh, scandal. What you might bring up the more recent instant of the uh, subprime scandal and uh, crisis, so that the theft or embezzlement could not be detected. What would be the result of the wholesale application of this device by General Motors? Well, labor would have to run twice as fast on the treadmill just to stay abreast. If, if uh, of every two dollars wage increase, one dollar was taken back by General Motors through this invisible vacuum cleaner. Yet the union could pat itself on the shoulder for the wonderful job it did for its workers. It is doubtful, to say the least, that the existence of a contrivance like this could be kept in secret forever. Another problem with the scheme is that the tacit assumption <coughs> that the workers and their unions is a bunch of illiterate bores unfamiliar with the four rules of arithmetic. Yet the parable this imaginary story is not quite as fanciful as it may appear at first sight. Actually, there is an invisible vacuum cleaner. It is called the liberal currency debasement. Just substitute government for General Motors. And the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle fall into place immediately. Unlike General Motors, the government cannot be sued for siphoning off labor's gains fraudulently and surreptitiously. The modus operandi, the way to operate the government's invisible vacuum cleaner, is known and condemned by many courageous critiques but to no avail. The media ignores the criticism and the public's anger is not raised. Some monetary experts are blackmailed and some economists are bribed with fat government contracts and grants. To add insult to injury, the funds used for bribing have come out of the loot.
itself. <coughs> the chorus of servile, econ servile economists suppresses the voice of the critics. To the former deliberate currency debasement, they prefer, which they prefer to call inflation, something God-given or nature-given, with a connotation that far from being man-made, it is a natural phenomenon. It's merely a minor irritant. They say no moral dimension to the problem. As long as inflation is barely not noticeable, everything is fine. Economists cheer on the government for its valiant efforts to combat inflation, as if it weren't the very same government that has been both the engineer and the beneficiary of what is being combated. The invisible vacuum cleaner can only be operated by the government which is free to bend the legal system to its advantage. It can even violate its own constitution with impunity at pleasure. The Constitution of the United States expressly forbids the use of bills of credit, which could be the Federal Reserve note, for example, as legal tender, explicitly in the Constitution. But this has never inhibited the Treasury from printing the legal, to the legend on every Federal Reserve note that it is legal tender for all obligations, public and private. Since the executive arm of the government controls the judiciary, certainly at least as far as the jurors compensation salary are concerned no wonder that the latter judiciary condones the fraud of siphoning off labor's wage gains and no legal challenge to the operation of the invisible vacuum cleaner can ever succeed this brings to mind a quotation which is from Samuel Butler, who lived between 1600 and 1680. He wrote a book by the title Hudibris, uh, rather old-fashioned by today's standard, but there is an eternal line, a, a jewel, which I quote, just a one-liner. Doubtless, the pleasure is a pleasure is as great of being cheated as to cheat. <laughs> <clears throat> Which is amazing because it fits this uh, embezzlement of the gains of labor so perfectly. The government cheats, but if you look at it today, you might say those who are being cheated enjoy it immensely, and even cheered, and, and they accept the incredible charge that the gold standard is worse than what we have today, as a lot of labor organizations do. And uh, I find it amazing that uh, people like 
Ron Paul could not persuade labor leaders that just the opposite is, is the case. Not only does the government bribe the economist profession, it also uses its control over public education to throw dust into the eyes of every new generation of workers entering the labor force. Docile teachers fail to instruct their pupils about the importance of the virtue of thrift, about honesty in dealings between the government and its subjects, or between the government and its creditors. Instead, they preach the desirability, nay, the necessity for the government to manage the nation's money supply, which is just as absurd as the idea of the government managing the nation's soap supply. The citizens are immersed in a marriage of government propaganda from womb to tomb. Small wonder that the workers are confused and their unions are blinded to official duplicity and chicanery. The invisible vacuum cleaner reaches not only into the pockets and bank accounts of <coughs> domestic workers, it is <coughs> equally effective in siphoning off the savings of foreign workers. It is the Moloch, this ancient uh, a Hebrew god of the world, the Moloch of the world. The Moloch was famous of devouring his own children, and that's what the uh, the government is doing. It can reach into the vaults of central banks and the mattresses of poor peasants the world over, wherever dollar banknotes or balances are held. U.S. Treasury bonds in the hands of foreigners are, in effect, irredeemable promises. At maturity, the holder of one issue can only exchange it for another scrap of paper carrying another irredeemable promise. The promisor assumes no responsibility except for the quality of ink and paper to make counterfeit counterfeiting harder. If a maturity, if at maturity the dollar is worth only a fraction of the value of the dollar with which the bond was purchased 30 years earlier, that's too bad. But it is entirely the problem of the foreign holder of the bond. Why, under these circumstances, are foreigners so foolish as to buy and hold U.S. Treasury securities? Here is the answer, courtesy of Samuel Butler. Doubtless, the pleasure is as great of being cheated as to cheat. <laughs> Foreign holders to beat their own central bank. They try. They are proud that they have outsmarted their homegrown looters as the securities of their own governments lose value even faster than those of the U.S.
I, I come to discussing the quantity theory of money, which is a false theory. It teaches that uh, the value of money is a function of its quantity. If there is more money in circulation, it is worth less and vice versa. And this is the argument which the monetarists uh, put right in the center and they uh, claim, and of course uh, the name of uh, Milton Friedman again comes up first, they claim that the value of money can be controlled by controlling the rate of its issuance. You know, I mean, this is an incredible thing for a scientist to say, because the premise is that these instruments were promises and they were issued fraudulently. They are promising something which is which the issuer does not have the means nor the intention to fulfill. I mean whatever the US Treasury has borrowed ever since Nixon uh, there's no way to to make good on, on the promise to repay. They still talk about the full faith and credit of the United States, which is a joke, which is a very sad joke. Now what Milton Friedman is saying in a sense is that if you limit the quantity of false promises, then they will become they, they can keep their value <laughs> indefinitely as if people were stupid and incurably so. When Abe Lincoln already said that you cannot fool all the people all of the time, yet Milton Friedman says yes you can. You just issue the false promises at a controlled rate, not more say as 3% a year. If you keep to this quantity rule, you'll be all right. You can fool all the people all of the time. The pleasure of being cheated. There you have it. So how could we account for the travesty that the government, while doing these things with impunity earns high praise for combating inflation. The short answer to these difficult questions is the government has over a period of time involving several generations successfully indoctrinated people with a most dangerous and vicious doctrine, the quantity theory of money. It's a theory which is dressed up in scientific terms, especially borrowing heavily from physics. According to this theory, the value of money is determined not by its quality, but solely by its quantity. The obvious motivation of the quantity theory is the a priori removal of all moral considerations from the debate on debt 
based money. A priori means that before any other discussion you have to do this. You have to remove all possible moral considerations from the discussion. Since regulating the quantity of money involves regulating the banking system, it follows that the task can only be entrusted to the government. So says Milton Friedman. The Milton Friedman does not admit that the private, uh, that the, the private market could issue money. No, you need the government. Only the government can make the ponderous decisions impartially, which are involved in the problem of increasing the quantity of money in uniform doses, year in and year out. The quantity theory of money uses an impressive array of mathematics equations such as the equation of exchange. I am not going to use the flip chart. I just say MV equals PQ. M times V. This means the quantity of money times its V, velocity, is equal to P, a price, times Q, the quantity. The purpose of the exercise, of the mathematical exercise, is to persuade the uninitiated that human action, just like mechanical action, can be reliably predicted via mathematical formulas. However, individuals are not molecules, and therefore the essence of human action cannot be captured by equation, and I say this as a mathematician, and I know what I'm talking about. There is human action, and then there is uh, the action of molecules, atoms, and the physical entities without free will. And this, this is, these are two different things. And uh, one action can be described in terms of differential equations and other mathematical methods, but if free will is involved, then it's quite futile to say that the behavior of the molecules with free will subject to the same uh, equations as molecules without free will. It's preposterous. Human individuals have what molecules do not, namely free will. You may plug in space, time, mass, force, etc into the equations, but you can never ever plug in free will, not into a mathematical equation. The trouble with the quantity theory of money is that it is palpably false. Monetarists have utterly failed to come up with a universally acceptable definition of money. This is evident from the proliferation of monetary aggregates such as M1, M2, M3, and so on, M99. <laughs> I don't think they have reached that stage yet. Milton Friedman tried to get around the problem by talking about high-powered money. Now what's high-powered money? 
According to his definition, and this is something he can obviously define, high-powered high money is the deposit liabilities of the Federal Reserve banks as distinct from Federal Reserve notes because just as you make deposit in your own bank, uh, banks can make, make deposits in a Federal Reserve banks and the liability of the Federal Reserve Bank to this private bank say is by definition high powered money. So Milton Friedman thinks he has solved the problem but he didn't because whoever has seen high powered money ever buying a loaf of bread or a quart of milk. I mean, just imagine money which never buys bread and money which never buys milk. This is not the definition of money. Milton Friedman did not succeed in showing that money can be defined. His definition is not the def definition of money, it's the definition of a special relationship between two banks, that's all. <clears throat> nice try, but didn't work. If we cannot agree on what money is, then how can we expect to regulate its quantity. Monetary scientist Walter Spire had this to say about this question in 1954, and I quote, apparently no quantity theory of money which has so far been stated has any validity. And he is a respect he was, he, did, he has died in the meantime. Uh, very respected monetary scientist. The evidence alone is sufficient to dispose of such an assumption, but for the reason, for the lack of relationship between the supply of currency and the prevailing prices need to be understood. And that's what, that's how he disproves the the quantity theory. Currency is a two-dimensional entity. One dimension is the supply, the quantity. But there is a second dimension which is velocity. And often velocity, the rapidity with which the supply of currency is used, is a more important factor than is the supply of currency in affecting prices. And well, this is something you have to think a little bit about if you want to understand it thoroughly. Currency has two dimensions, supply is only one, velocity is the other, but if you ask the question what impacts prices more, the change of prices up or down, then you will find out that 
velocity sometimes overwhelms supply. And that's what happens in hyperinflation. The, the velocity is spinning at a formidable rate. So the, the, you try to control prices by controlling supply of money. This could be overruled by people who, into whose hands money has flown because they can uh, try to get rid of uh, money very fast and then the, the, the effect on prices, whatever quantity rule you want to put in effect, will be negated. <coughs> So it could be objected that it is hardly fair to blame the government for the outcome of a scientific debate that has ended with the triumph of the quantity theory of money. This triumph, it is alleged, has come about through meticulous statistical research, not through crude government interference with scientific inquiry. Did it really? To adjudicate this issue, it will be necessary to examine how, competing, how, how the competing doctrine of quality theory of money, or as it is also known, the real bills doctrine, has been dethroned and ostracized through the crudest interference in science by the strong arm of the government. The real Bill's doctrine, as we know, has the most impressive credentials. Adam Smith made it the cornerstone of his uh, immortal book, The Wealth of Nations, in 1776. It has served as the scientific basis on which the monetary system of Germany, the German Reich, pre-World War I, was constructed after it adopted the gold standard in the 1870s. So what happened was the governments were on the right track. Even in Europe, the Germany tried to organize its monetary system along quite acceptable lines. This is interesting that Germany adopted Adam Smith's theory of the real bill doctrine, but that is the, that was the basis, and it was all due to World War One that the whole system collapsed. The real Bill's doctrine over, was overthrown in the United States between 1914 and 1968. It was done piecemeal, but not by a committee of scientists acting in the service of truth, but by the same government that had overthrown the Federal Reserve Act. The original Federal Reserve Act was not an all bad document. 
That's the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. Now, you may be shocked to hear me to say something like this, but I try to be fair and give credit where credit is due. The original Federal Reserve Act of 1913 was basically a real base, basically an outgrowth of the real bills doctrine. The Federal Reserve System was envisaged to be a commercial uh, paper system. The, uh, the government debt was not recognized among the so-called eligible papers, which the Federal Reserve banks. It, 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 this didn't mean that the Federal Reserve was <coughs> prevented from holding government paper. No, they were allowed. But there was a penalty which was called Federal Reserve Tax. If the amount of government paper, government bonds, notes, bills, exceeded a certain limit, then the Federal Reserve Banks had to pay a penalty and the Treasury was supposed to collect it. You see, and that, that idea that the thief was given power to collect the tax yeah. defeated the system. The, <laughs> the Treasury had no interest in collecting a tax which it was in, in, in the Treasury's interest that the banks held. Well, you know, Antal, maybe it was a canard. Maybe it was. Maybe these, these, maybe were, not, it these was. were not ignorant men. Who That's right. That's right. They were brilliant. And yeah. they did it in the dark of night. Yeah. They, they knew they were going to face opposition. They went ahead back. And then later on, yeah. they, did, they amended it where they could put in government notes alongside real, you know, uh, real bills of exchange and money to, to form the basis of the reserve. Absolutely. And so, I, Absolutely. you know. Yeah. This, this is amazing. Yeah. And you know, today, even today, you hear, hear a lot about open market operations of the Federal Reserve. In fact, it's the open market committee of the Federal Reserve which makes the decision what to do, raise interest rates or lower them or what have you. And you know what? The, the open market operations were not authorized by the original Federal Reserve Act. So they were illegal. They were introduced underhandedly. And only in, uh, after the damage was done, did they bring in amendments amending the original act that would legalize them. And if you really dig into this story, it's the most incredible thing of chicanery and, uh, and uh, underhanded. So to assume that all this happened by accident is you have to be naive. You have to be one of them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Now here is uh, here is a piece I like, and I give the title to that short paragraph: "Human Action or Horse Action." You have to know that. Uh, Ludwig von Mises, great economist of the 20th century, has his greatest work on economics and the title he gave to it is Human Action. The idea is what we have just touched upon, that the, the uh, movement of molecules in the sense of physics is one thing and the movement of human and interaction of human molecules is another the first is described by the laws of causality this is a physical law there is cause and there is effect and if you want to predict the effect you go back and analyze the causes but the same principle just wouldn't work if your subject matter is human molecules because they have free will which physical molecules do not have so the principle of cause and effect causality is not applicable to this and out of this thought Mises created the concept of human action in this way he explains economics not based on cause and effect but based and there's a word for that the word is uh, What's the word? Causality and... Uh, teleology. 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 Not, not theology. Teleology. And, and thank you very much, uh, Rudy. Uh, <laughs> I have to rely on you when my memory slips. Uh, that's Greek. And the meaning is purpose, purposive action. This is something which molecules do not have. They don't act purposefully. Anton, Human beings do. The Federal Reserve is a teleological construct. It's it is. intent and it's purposive and it works and by its fruit you shall know it. It is the indebting of society, of producers, and of savers to the benefit of bankers and government okay. just by the system operating itself its intent is mm. built into it all right so on the one hand i explained human action in terms of mises mises who created that uh, combination of words human action and now here is the other word horse action and that the credit goes to milton Friedman. <laughs> this is what Milton Friedman said in criticizing the Federal Reserve System because he was critical. No, no, you can't, can't uh, just uh, forget about that. Milton Friedman 
was a very vocal critique of the Federal Reserve. Here is what he said, almost literally. I don't have the verse and chapter quotation, but it could be looked up. I, I, with a little bit of work, I could find it where he said it and when he said it. But he did certainly say this. Milton Friedman did in criticizing the Federal Reserve System. He said that even an, a horse can run the Federal reserve. All you have to do is to set up a threshing machine. In the old days when they harvested wheat or any other grain, they used horses for before the threshing machine and combines and so on. They had horses go round and round and they were either stepping on the sheaves of wheat or there was some mechanism which is neither here nor there, I don't remember. But I just want to remind you that there was a time when <laughs> horses were used for threshing wheat. And all you had to do to make sure that a certain amount of wheat will be thrashed and ready to put in bags is to make sure that the horse did the thrashing at the same rate. And that's all the Federal Reserve has to do to learn horse action and get the grain out of the sheaves, out of the... So the question is human action or horse action? The real Bill's doctrine as well as the wealth of nations of Adam Smith were conceived by, the, by their author as merely one chapter in the more complete work on society. This work was to be written in the great tradition of Scottish moral philosophy. Remember Adam Smith was not a professor of economics in Scotland, he was a professor of moral philosophy. That's what he was, that was his official title. And it was Glasgow University in Scotland. And it was his intention to make a comprehensive work on moral philosophy of which one chapter would be the wealth of nations. It's just a small part of a much bigger <coughs> concept, moral philosophy. <coughs> By contrast, the theory of money as it is presented today by the monetarists is entirely devoid of any ethical considerations and is completely divorced from moral philosophy. Just as Milton Friedman has described it, even a clever horse can be trained to tread out the new money supply at a steady pace at the treadmill." Unquote. But honest money is not the result of horse action, is it? 
or a mechanical process symbolized by the treadmill or the threshing machine. It is the outcome of human action. If you want to keep it honest, it's the people who should create money at the mint by taking their gold and exchange it for the coin of the realm. If it's dishonest, then it's the dishonest people at the Federal Reserve, as you just pointed out, uh, Daryl. So honest money that the workers, widows, orphans, and other people of small means who need protection can fully trust comes about as a result of the market process. The natural process of production, producing goods and services in society, aiming at satisfying the most urgent and demonstrable needs of the consuming public. Now, I, I think this is just wonderful, to put side by side horse action and human action. One is the idea of Milton Friedman, horse action, that's all you need, the intelligence of a horse and then you can have your central bank, or the idea of Mises and Adam Smith and all the rest of upright economists and monetary scientists that money comes into being through human action, not horse action and not even mechanical action. You cannot just put a computer and program it and then it will spit out money as society. No matter how complicated the input could be, you put in all kinds of statistics. And no, no, it's human action. This is, this, I, I can't improve on that, I'm sorry. Horse action and human action. So uh, that is something for you to take home with you. Horse action, human action. Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz wrote a monograph together in the 1960s called Monetary History of the United States from 1867 to 1960. They wrote that gold was nationalized in order to capture profits for the government that were to accrue later to all holders of gold after President Roosevelt has devalued the dollar from $20 to 35 In other words, $1 used to be 1 20th of an ounce of gold and after the devaluation it was decreased to 1 35th ounce of a gold. When a fellow Democrat of the President, Senator Gore from Oklahoma, he was a blind man, a very great man who in in spite of his blindness, managed to study complicated monetary theory, and he was, and he did that as a politician. 
he believed that he cannot be a good politician unless he understands money. So he took the trouble instead of being blind. And uh, as I say, both Gore, Senator Gore and President Roosevelt were members of the same party, the Democratic Party. Uh, so at one point the president called together his, uh, uh, these uh, democratic senators and uh, explained his uh, measures in 1933, how to deal with the economic crisis and uh, part of it was to uh, recall the gold coins, which means in uh, plain English confiscating the, uh, because we, the people were paid paper money in exchange, so you might argue it was not confiscation, it was just changing one form of money on another. But what Roosevelt had in mind was that once he grabbed the gold, people's gold, he would write up its value. And people who own the gold originally can kiss goodbye to that higher value. They were given the paper money and they could do what they wanted with it, but the gold was in Roosevelt's hand. So, you know, uh, this was quite controversial at the time. So he asked the senators, this was Roosevelt sitting here, and the senators were standing around, well, what do you think? And uh, of course they all said, well, we understand this was necessary. And so he came to Gore, and Gore said something different. He said, Henry VIII approached, of England, approached total depravity as nearly as the imperfections of human nature would allow. But the vilest thing that Henry ever did was to debase the coin of the realm. He didn't comment on what Roosevelt did, but this was certainly even viler than the <laughs> The Henry VIII did, who was a totally depraved man, according to, in his opinion. Earlier, when President Roosevelt asked the same senator, Senator Gore of Oklahoma, for his opinion regarding these measures, he answered, Why? That's just plain stealing, sir, isn't it? Well, of course, <laughs> he didn't endear himself to the president and he w would never win another election. I don't think he was even uh, nominated. And this is all reported in Benjamin Anderson's Economics and the Public Welfare, a very uh, great book on economics. Be that as it may, time has come to return to the looted gold. How would you address that problem? Well, I don't think I really want to go into this because there are more important things, but that problem is still outstanding. I mean, people who had to surrender the gold, the gold was confiscated, 
uh, are long dead and uh, so it's not possible to compensate them. But there should be uh, some kind of amends made. And uh, that problem I do address, uh, but I, I don't think this is really uh, uh, of uh, so great an interest at this moment. And uh, let's just uh, go on. After all, we are talking about credit unions, and I haven't said very much about it, have I? <laughs> So, I continue with the question of closed shop and right to work. Gold coin circulation is to be spontaneous and voluntary. No legal tender laws will force it, as those laws are presently necessary to force the circulation of irredeemable currency, the Federal Reserve notes in the United States. People will be free to continue using the dollar, the irredeemable dollar, Federal Reserve notes, in exchange for their goods and services if they want. And they can also use it for the purposes of savings if they are that so they are, the, 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 what's the word, they lack intelligence to that effect because who in his right mind would use the dollar for the purposes of saving? But anyhow, there would be an alternative. The alternative would be gold coins of the realm, which they get from the mint if they take their gold and convert it into uh, the coinage of the nation. The legal status of the Federal Reserve notes has to be withdrawn. Call the day M day, M for mint, uh, the day when the mint is open for, to gold and silver. That contracted before M-Day could be retired either with paper dollars or with gold coins at the option of the debtor. As far as the debt contracted after M-Day is concerned, provisions in the contract should apply. Labor organizations would ask their membership to decide whether they wanted their wages to be paid in gold eagle coins or in Federal Reserve notes. Let's see what the membership wants. <laughs> I can see. Professor <laughs> negotiated the UAW. <laughs> Uh, where labor is not organized, a committee with labor and management representatives, say two labor votes for every management vote, would make the same decision. This is a very delicate issue, and we must well understand that a great deal of educational effort is needed to make the labor force see the implications of what is involved. 
Those laborers who want to retain closed shop, fixed minimum wage rates, unemployment insurance benefits, and social security benefits, company pension, health, and other fringe benefits, as well as long-term collective agreements to fix wages, should opt for the irredeemable current, should opt to get wages paid in terms of Federal Reserve notes. The downside for them is that the value of the dollar will continue to fluctuate in terms of gold and if, and if history is any guide, the dollar value of those benefits will probably decline or may even disappear abruptly if, for example, the pension plan collapses for lack of funding, which in many cases does happen. Those laborers, however, who prefer right to work to close shop and who would prefer fully funded health insurance and pension benefits defined in gold units to unfunded government health insurance and pension schemes defined in terms of the irredeemable dollar should opt for the gold eagle coins in which their wages will have to be paid. Gold wage rates may fluctuate, but in return, the threat of unemployment will be removed, and workers will be free to make their own provisions for health care and pensions. Payroll taxes on gold wages, such as social security levies, will not be authorized. Laborers who have originally opted for wage, wages payable in irredeemable dollars will be given a chance to opt for wages payable in gold every time their labor contract comes up for renewal or annually in the case of unorganized labor. Existing labor legislation to govern collective agreements in dollar terms would not apply to wages payable in gold eagles. However, new legislation should provide that gold wages should be at least 10% higher than comparable dollar wages calculated in the floating exchange. Well, uh, I don't want to bore you with these various things, but the, as you see, there are lots of technical problems in uh, deciding when the transition takes place. The common threat in all this is that the ultimate decision should be left for the individuals. There should be an option. There should be as little coercion as possible. Obviously, legislation is necessary to put an end to the coercive uh, legal tender laws, for example. That's obvious. There, this is not negotiable. But every other aspect which comes up, there should be as much leeway for individual choices as possible. And here is an uh, uh, a provision which is probably important, and that's 
the divorcing the mint from the treasury as it is and as it was set up originally the mint is an arm of the treasury which is like entrusting the chicken coop to the fox and that was a mistake the fox <laughs> the men should be entrusted directly or subordinated directly to to Congress especially House of Representatives which is getting re-elected every other year uh, it's further understood that the regulation of the gold component of the nation's uh, currency is not the task of the federal government or central bank created by the federal government. The power to regulate the amount of gold money in circulation is reserved by the Constitution for the people themselves. The symbol of this power is the United States mint, not just symbol, instrument as well. To give better effect to this constitutional provision, better than what was done in the past, is that the U.S. mint should be removed from the control of the U.S. Treasury and the executive branch altogether and placed under the sole authority of the legislative branch, specifically under the direction of the U.S. House of Representatives. This is not only fitting, but it is also in line with the language and spirit of the Constitution, which places all money matters into the hands of the direct representatives of the people. It follows that the simple majority vote of the House of representatives will suffice to originate this transfer. So this could be done today if there was the political will. Because that's a money matter. So if they, they had any spines and any up, uh, you know, they should follow Ron Paul and they should vote with a simple majority to remove the mint from the jurisdiction of the executive and take control. That could not be challenged. It could go all the way to the Supreme Court and could be approved. And the regulatory power of the, over the credit unions must be retained also by the U.S. House of Representatives without the interposition of the U.S. Treasury. Well, with this I close that lecture, but we still have some time, so I'll be... Do we? Hmm? Yeah. Uh, any questions? Yes. I have a question not from this lecture, but from earlier. Okay. Uh, when you were talking about the um, uh, the small change uh, having a ten or fifteen percent seniority on it. Uh, am I? That's the silver. Uh, right. The silver. Uh, for coppers. Uh, nickels, it could be greater. 
Right, well, let, let's say for sake of argument it was 15%. I want to make sure I understand um, the chain of causation here. If, is it true that if the founding fathers uh, in the uh, 1792 Coin Act hadn't set the exchange between gold and silver at 15 to 1 or 16 to 1, mm -hmm. whatever it was, if they hadn't done that, if they had gotten it exactly right and said, well, just let the silver dollar be X amount, X many grains of silver, the Spanish mill dollar, and we'll let gold, the gold eagle be whatever exchange ratio to silver that the market sees fit. If that had happened, would there have been a problem with, uh, couldn't, couldn't they have let uh, uh, all of the small change be full bodied as well? Because there would have, there would have been no um, problem with people hoarding it, trying to play, trying to gain the gold-silver ratio. Is that a true statement? Could they have had full-bodied coins at all, at all um, uh, sizes of uh, coins, half dollar, quarter? Yeah. I understand your, your question. Uh, and uh, my answer of the cough is that they couldn't be full-bodied. Because whether it's silver or it's gold, they would still disappear from circulation. What happened on the bimetallism is that at one time silver disappeared from circulation, at another time gold disappeared from circulation. And this was always the more valuable metal which disappeared. That's. Uh, uh, the law of uh, Gresham's law. Gresham's. Thank you. Gresham's law says that cheap money drives good, good money. money out of circulation. That's a crude way of putting it, but it's it's acceptable, and that's what happened. Now, if silver coinage and gold coinage had a variable relationship following the market ratio, Gresham's law wouldn't come into force because Gresham's law is always a consequence of coercion or some coercive rule which makes it compulsory to accept or make two unequal equal. Okay. So true enough, this problem would be solved. But if subsidiary coinage was full-bodied, then I think it would still happen that subsidiary coins could be hoarded. And when would that happen? It would happen when it would seem to me it would happen when the value of the coinage as a metal was greater than what it would be used in the monetary system. Don't you think it would disappear then? Yeah, but the full body means that the two values Don't conflict. Well, what I'm wondering is maybe does it have to do with the fact that it would be, uh, it's one thing to have the silver dollar issued free of seniorage by the mint uh, in unlimited amounts, but the government was trying to put some sort of cap on the expense of running the mint, and 
maybe that's maybe that's why it could never they could never have full body small coins because it would just be too great an expense and they'd also be constantly replacing the wearing uh, wearing out dimes and, and quarters uh, free of charge as well uh, it's just it's just too much and so maybe uh, maybe that's the reason why even if the ratio between the two metals were not fit was not fixed they still could not provide full-bodied coins. See, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think how we might get back. What, what would uh, happen if the mint was reopened to both coins, uh, both uh, metals? Um, uh, how uh, if, if they could provide the any size uh, coins as just full-bodied coins? Uh, maybe, maybe it's too technical, or maybe it's not really relevant to your arguments here. Uh, I can see the reason why you asked this question, probably because. This even that limited legal tender requirement looks like an, an invalid invasion into the rights of the individual, maybe. Uh, and uh, well, I don't know. I would. Ha I must say, I would have to think about that. Could I have two cents word? Yeah, I think it was impossible to have such small gold coins to to be like a penny's worth, I and mean, it would have to be a a milligram of gold, it can't be a coin. Right. So they said, well, copper is worth a lot less per ounce, so they can take a significant chunk of copper and make that. So, so you're sort of obliged to set a value to it, or else there'll be too many folding values in the market. But in this day and age, there are such things as uh, you know, milligram yeah. embedded, little tiny grain of, of gold in a plastic card, so maybe this whole copper, nickel yeah. stuff would go away and it would be a tiny piece of gold. And then, then it would be full-bodied in that size yeah. with maybe just the extra cost of encapsulating it, differentiating the two products. Because always if you buy a half ounce gold coin, the premium is a little bit higher, but it's more labor to make it. Uh -huh. And the smaller it gets, the more relatively expensive it is. Yeah, I, was, I guess I was just asking you to see seniorage, whether the seniorage rate was related to the fact that the ratio was fixed between gold and silver, but I think I'm misunderstanding yeah. uh, Most people here are too young, they wouldn't remember, but when I was in Britain for the first time in my life, the, the copper, the one penny coin, and that's not the present uh, decimal system they have, but the old uh, system when uh, the 12 pennies made a shilling and so on. The copper was a big coin, probably as big as a silver dollar. And I remember if you wanted to make a phone call or a couple of phone calls, you have to you had a problem. You had to because that was still a couple pennies to make a phone call, local phone call in London, for example. And uh, you just had to feed that heavy big coins into the phone to get connection. And it was altogether inconvenient. Now why was the copper so big? Because that's a throwback to the old thinking that even though you cannot have a full-bodied copper, but as Rudy is suggesting, the copper should have as little seniorage as possible. And the only way to do that is beef it up until it's a big coin, so big that in effect it's inconvenient. 
So maybe it was the uh, uh, phone companies that started the debasement. <laughs> Coinage. Well, <laughs> convenience. Wonderful excuse for the government. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't see an issue in terms of the uh, impinging on individual rights about legal tender for you know 100. You have to accept 100 pennies. Yeah. But obviously, it would be better if you keep the seniority as low as possible within limits of. You know, of, of reasonableness trying to run them in because I think it is right that the men should be, yeah. should be operated free of charge yeah. to the to um, people trying to convert. Them. Yeah, but uh, but the short answer to your question is that, <coughs> as 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 Rudy pointed out, is that even if you do that, full-bodied silver. Sub, uh, supplement uh, subsidiary coins. They are still too big uh, uh, to serve as, because you sometimes you want to buy just uh, a newspaper, or an egg, or whatever, and then the yeah. coin would be so small, so you would have. So there is no no real solution to problem, but you have to accept that subsidiary coinage is all right provided that people can go to the mint and use it for its original purpose which is to uh, create money on demand when people want it not when the banks but when the people want it and and that is the, 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 that is the big function and then there is a subsidiary function for the mint to provide the small coinage for uh, commerce. That's us. That's us. <laughs> Common people, wage earners. Yeah. <laughs> I had another, if no one else has any questions, I had another clarification question. Um, okay. The idea of, um, of using the mint, uh, I, I could bring a coin from another country that was known of known purity to the mint or I could bring a bar that was 0.999 purity but I couldn't bring my silverware to the mint right I couldn't bring just more jewelry to the mint and say melt this down assay it and give me gold coins or would I be allowed to do that as well was that what they, uh, the founders had envisioned this is a question yes what, what, of what, an open hand yeah would, would, would a uh, I think what Nathan's asking is that if you had a, a, a mint, an open mint, as you... We if the mint is open, open to gold or yeah, silver. or silver. Does it include, if he walked in with silverware, I mean with, you know, and said I have, or, or you know, gold, you know, um, is it, would it do with jewelry? Uh, no. Free of seniorage means that if the metal you present is the right weight and right okay. fineness, then there's no charge, zero charge. They would give you silver for silver, silver coin for silver, no charge. However, if the fineness is not certified and if there is any assaying involved, then there will be an assay charge which has to be distinguished from seniorage. <coughs> and you can take silverware if you want, but then there is a refining charge and an assay charge. Yeah, that's only fair. So that's fair. 
uh, the, the, the open, if the mint is open to the free coins of silver and gold, that strictly means that you have to surrender the right weight and right fineness. Then there's no charge. In any other case, there might be an appropriate charge. That's how it worked. And uh, that's why a lot of U.S. mints were established in places where close to the mining regions. There is a mint in in the Carolina, South or North Carolina, North Carolina, I think. There were gold mines there. You can look around. I uh, I've been there and I've seen a disused gold mine there. And of course, the California, <coughs> San Francisco mint. <coughs> <clears throat> and the idea is that it uh, should be close enough where the gold or silver comes from and uh, as little cost and expense as possible involved in. Uh, these were marvelous provisions. It's, it's amazing that they went out of their way to even avoid the impression that there is some monkey business or possible or, or future future bureaucrats or bankers or whoever uh, would would play dirty games on the people but no matter how far they go the crooks will find a way and and they did and they do they did well, if uh, no other question, call it a day, and we'll meet again tomorrow, 10 o'clock. Thank you very much. Thank you.